What are you paying for cotton? Nine and a half for low midland and ten for ordinary. We got most of ours out early. Sold to the Woodson Brothers in Little Rock for 11 cents. And I suggest you take the balance of it to the Woodson Brothers. We took the balance to Woodson. We got ten and a half. Why'd you come here to tell me this? Oh, I thought we might shop around up here next year, but I guess we're doing all right in Little Rock. I'm Maddie Ross. Daughter of Frank Ross. Oh. Tragic, eh? Like the post to sell those ponies back to you that my father bought. Oh, that I fear is out of the question. I will see that they're shipped to you at my earliest convenience. Well, we don't want the ponies now. We don't need them. Well, that hardly concerns me. Your father bought the ponies and paid for them, and there's an end of it. I, I have the bill of sale. And I want $300 for Papa's saddle horse that was stolen from your stable. You have to take that up with a man who stole a horse. Tom Cheney stole the horse while it was in your care. You are responsible. But I believe you will find I'm not liable for such claims. You were the custodian. If you were a bank ever robbed, you could not simply tell the depositors to go ahead. Secondly, your valuation of the horse is high by about $200. How old are you? If anything, my price is low. Your father's horse was stolen by a murderous criminal. I had provided reasonable protection for the creature as per our implicit agreement. Well, I will take it to law. I will pay $200 to your father's estate when I have in my hand a letter from your lawyer absolving me of all liability from the beginning of the world to date. I will pay $200 for Judy plus $100 for the ponies and $25 for the gray horse that Tom Cheney left. He was easily worth $40. That is $325. The ponies have no part in it. I will not buy them. And the price for Judy is $325. I, I would not pay $325 for winged Pegasus. As for the gray horse, it does not belong to you. The gray horse was lent to Tom Cheney by my father. Cheney only had the use of him. I will pay $225 and keep the gray horse. I don't want the post. not accept that. There will be no settlement after I leave this office. It will go to law. All right, this is my last offer. $250 for that. I get the release previously discussed, and I keep your father's saddle. The gray horse is not yours to sell. The saddle is not for sale. I will keep it. Lawyer Daggett will prove ownership of the gray horse. He will come after you with a writ of replevant. A what? Writ of All right, now li listen very carefully, as I will not bargain further. I will take the ponies back and the gray horse, which is mine, and settle for $300. Now, you must take that or leave it, and I do not much care which it is. Well, Lawyer Decker would not wish me to consider anything under $325. But I will settle for 320 if I am given the 20 in advance. Now, here's what I have to say about that saddle. Now, early on in the movie True Grid, you learned that Maggie Ross is a pretty shrewd negotiator. You know, shrewdness is something we admire in people, isn't it? That is, unless you're on the other side of the negotiating table from it. Uh, but shrewdness, true shrewdness, is not found in getting what you want. True shrewdness is found in letting the other person think they got what they want as you get what you want. Now, that's the strategy that Joseph is going to employ when he introduces his brothers to Pharaoh. 
Turn with me to Genesis uh, 47, beginning verse 1, and you'll see exactly what I mean as we continue this series on the life of Joseph. Notice how it begins. And then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all their that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. Now, you need to focus in on what has happened in the previous chapter. It's there that we learned that Joseph has asked his father, Jacob, and his brothers to come live with him in Egypt. They have nearly starved in the land of Canaan. And so they pack up all their belongings and make the long, arduous journey south to Egypt. And when they arrive... Joseph and his father Jacob are reunited for the first time in 22 years. And it's a tender reunion. But it's at that point that Jacob makes a statement and says, I can die now a satisfied man, having seen my son's face one more time. And then Joseph goes and informs Pharaoh. My family has arrived, and a time is established for Joseph to introduce his family uh, to the royal family. And what I want you to notice is that jo- how Joseph shrewdly introduces his brothers to the most powerful man in the land, that is Pharaoh. Uh, but, but we need to set a context first. You need to know that as Joseph introduces his brothers to Pharaoh, this is like Jed Clampett being introduced to King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. You need to picture that in your mind. I mean, one's a monarch, the other's a shepherd. One has lived in palaces all his life, the other has lived in tents. This is a major clash between two worlds, and Joseph seems to understand naturally that no matter how Pharaoh dresses up his brothers by giving them clothes. You can take the boy out of the country, but you'll never take the country out of the boy. So Joseph has to coach his brothers on what to say and what not to say in Pharaoh's presence. Now, Joseph has been living in Egypt for the past 22 years, and he seems to just naturally know that Pharaoh's going to ask his brothers a specific question. He's going to ask the question, So, tell me, boys, what do you do for a living? You see, Egypt is a caste system, a hierarchical system, and shepherds, keepers of livestock, are pegged near the bottom rung of that caste system. So, as you read, you expect Joseph to tell his brothers to make up something different about what they do. But I'm telling you, Joseph, he's a shrewd negotiator. He actually wants his brothers to answer honestly. Well, Pharaoh, we, we take care of stinky, smelly, dirty sheep. That's what he wants them to say. But he's a little fearful that his country bumpkin brothers are going to try to say something to impress Pharaoh. So when Pharaoh says, what are you doing for a living? 
He's worried one of them is going to step up and say, well, Pharaoh, we specialize in animal husbandry. I mean, focusing our attention on the genetic details and behavioral modifications of the reproductive system of Orvis, Swinus, Bovinus. Now, that's what Psy on Duck Dynasty probably would have said, don't you think? <laughs> now, you may be sitting there scratching your head thinking, I don't understand. What, what's wrong with making a favorable impression here? I'm telling you, Joseph is as wise as Solomon. He has come to understand that God has not elevated him to this position of influence for his good. But it's for the good of others. I mean, through all the years of pain and suffering, being a slave and being a prisoner, through all the years of leaning into the truth that God is with him, showing his loving kindness to him... Joseph has come to understand that the story he's living in has never been about him. It's a bigger story. It's a story that goes all the way back to his grandfather Abraham. When God revealed himself to Abraham and told him that I will bless you, meaning that he is going to prove himself to be a faithful and good God. That He is a God who calls and and who creates, who directs and guides. A God who forgives, who heals and restores. A God who provides and will protect His family from the bad that is in here and the bad that's out there in this fallen world. But secondly, Joseph also knows that his brothers are easily influenced by outside influences, which is exactly what took place when they lived in Canaan. And so he's concerned that in moving into this polytheistic culture, that their association with Egyptians is going to start eroding this heart of devotion he is starting to see develop in his family so that they might become this great nation that God had promised his grandfather Abraham. And they might take possession of the land that God has told them that is theirs. So here's the question in the text. How do you take a group of a hundred people, move them into a foreign land, and keep them a distinct people amidst the corrupting influence of a polytheistic culture? How do you do that? Well, Joseph has a plan. First thing he does is he encourages his brothers to be honest about their occupation. He says, boys, don't pad your resume. When Pharaoh asks you what you do, answer honestly. Tell him we are keepers of livestock. But I want you to know Joseph's shrewdness goes so much further than all that. Look at verse 2. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So he said, they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. Now notice that Joseph took just five of his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Now why five? Why not all eleven? I mean, some commentators have suggested that what Joseph wants to do is make the best impression. Uh, so he takes the five most outstanding brothers. 
But I don't see anywhere in the text that Joseph wants to make a good impression. He's more interested in keeping the family together. Other commentators have suggested that he picked the weakest and smallest of his brothers so that Pharaoh wouldn't be tempted to draft him into the army. But it's highly unlikely that Pharaoh would insult Joseph, this man who single-handedly saved his country from starvation by inviting his family to come to Egypt and then forcing them to serve in military service. So what exactly is Joseph doing here? Well, I think Joseph is picking the ugliest and craziest of his redneck brothers because he wants to make the worst impression. He wants them to eventually settle away from the Egyptians, away from the influence of this polytheistic culture. He wants them to become a distinct group of people away from those temptations So he's trying to protect his country cousins from getting into trouble. I think Joseph just knows naturally because of the wisdom that he has that if he doesn't do something right here and now, it's going to be like the country boy going to to the French Quarter, renting an apartment on Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. It's not going to go well. So what you need to do is you read the text, you've got to use your sanctified imagination. I mean, I can imagine that Joseph looks at Reuben and says, Hey, Reuben, i tell you what I want you to do. Those old sweats that you got that you hadn't washed in three years, put those on under that coat that Pharaoh gave you. You could smell those a mile away. And then Levi, you be sure and wear that ugly old NASCAR hat you got, the one with all the grease stains. And Dan, I mean, what I want you to do is uh, I want you to, to put a chaw of tobacco in your mouth. And when Pharaoh asks you your question, you spit. And, oh, and, and, and then Gad, I mean, tell Pharaoh how much you like shooting off fireworks every night. And Zeb, Zebulun, you tell Pharaoh you plan on going hunting and fishing with him every day. I can imagine something like that happened. So Joseph and his five brothers are presented before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asked the question that Joseph knew he had asked. He says, what is your occupation? Now, I imagine that Judah probably stepped forward and said, well, we shepherds, y'all. We just love them animals. I mean, and Joseph, my brother, says, we're going to be neighbors. Woo, man, that's going to be exciting. You know, I got fireworks out there in the cart, and I got some moonshine. And Gad, Gad's got this truck. He took them mufflers off. And woo-wee, that makes a big sound. You want a chaw? We got plenty. And you and I are going to go fishing every single day. Now, it could have happened like that. It could have. Now, I want you to notice Pharaoh's response. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, now by pulling off this little stunt, Joseph has virtually ensured that his family is going to live away from all the rest of the Egyptians. They're going to be safe in another part of Egypt. And... They're going to live in the land of Goshen. Now, what you need to know is that the land of Goshen is located south of the capital city. Now, 
this is the land of Goshen. It's later called Ramses. And right here, it's named Tanis. That's the capital city. They live far enough away that they will not be influenced so much by the polytheistic culture of the Egyptian capital. They're in a safer place. And then Pharaoh continues. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief shepherds over my flocks. But please keep your brothers away from me. I think that's the emphasis of the text. Now, I don't know if it happened like that, but can you see what God is doing in the text? I mean, this is amazing. He's taking this small, little, redneck family whom he loves dearly, and he has placed them in one of the most racist societies on all the earth. Now, why did he do that? Because he wants to protect them. He wants to protect them from pursuing other gods. And He wants to provide for them a place where they can grow and multiply into a great nation of anywhere between a half a million and a million people. And it's going to take about 400 years for that to take place. So Joseph has shrewdly negotiated for his family, hadn't he? I mean, they got a place to stay and they got food to live on. And Pharaoh, he gets the qualified herdsman, which he was looking for. It's a win-win. Both sides feel like they got what they want. But I want to tell you, what comes next is the climax of the entire story of Joseph and Jacob. And strangely, it has nothing to do with Joseph at all. Look at verse 7. And then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And went out before Pharaoh. Now what you need to know about Joseph's dad, Jacob, is that Jacob screwed up most of his life. I mean, it all began in the wound when he was contending with his brother. He was a twin. And then he ended up growing up in a family where his mom and dad played favorites. I mean, his dad preferred Esau, who, while not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, and who had a serious body hair problem, he was an avid hunter. And it is Jacob who ends up deceiving his father into giving him his blessing. And then Jacob goes and deceives his brother into giving him his birthright. So he has to run for his life to keep his brother Esau from killing him. I mean, that's what he means when he says, the days of my life have been evil. Now, the Scripture all the way back in Genesis 28, says that the very night that uh, he fled from his brother Esau, that he stopped in a certain place. Now, that's Hebrew for saying no place special. Cleveland, maybe, but it's really nowhere. Could be a spot on the side of the road. It was no place special. And the Scriptures 
tell us that what happens next had nothing to do with the merit of Jacob. Now, you've got to remember that Jacob has been messing up most of his life. He, he, he's codependent with his mom's strategies for manipulating the family. And he's been a jealous rival of his brother. He's been a brazen liar to his father. I mean, Joseph has done nothing to merit what's getting ready to happen. So that night, beside the road, Joseph falls asleep and he has a dream. And it's recorded that God spoke to him in the dream. And he says, I, God says, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And then in the next verse, Jacob wakes up and he responds this way. Surely the Lord is with me in this place. And I didn't know it. And Jacob spends the rest of his life forgetting that God said he would be with him. You see, Jacob never saw the hand of God through his difficult circumstances. Joseph did. And so Jacob becomes fearful and protective. But Joseph is different. He becomes forgiving and eager to serve others. Jacob spends a large portion of his life wrestling and running from God, just drifting away from Him. But Joseph spends most of his life engaged in growing closer to God. But, but I think it's here. Here in this text, back in Genesis 47, that Jacob is beginning to see things differently. I think it's been brought about by their journey to Egypt, their reunion with his son, and now meeting Pharaoh. He's beginning to understand the circumstances of life, of his life. And the details are starting to come into focus. I mean, notice back in Genesis 47, it says, Joseph brought his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. Did you know the Hebrew literally doesn't say set him? It says, he stood him before Pharaoh. Not bowed down, but standing up. And then to everyone's surprise, Jacob ends up pronouncing a blessing on Pharaoh. I mean, notice the text says he does it going in, and he does it coming out. I mean, you don't need to miss that. He blesses Pharaoh twice. That's a significant emphasis in the text. I mean, the point is that Jacob pronounces a blessing on a man who thinks he's God and he gets away with it. Pharaoh thinks he's God and Jacob pronounces God's blessing on him and he gets away with it. In other words, this wrinkled, withered, gray-haired old man walking with a limp stands in front of this king who is got his royal robes on, he's sitting on his golden throne, he's got attendants waving palm branches in front of him with his royal scepter, and this little man has the audacity to call down God's favor on a man who sees himself as almighty, all-powerful God incarnate. I mean, can you see it in the text? Can you see what God is doing here? I mean, Jacob is starting to understand. 
He's starting to understand who he is. He's starting to embrace his true identity. He's beginning to see that God has actually been with him all along. And he's starting to understand that he is a child of the real king, God. And he's come to understand that what he has to offer this man, Pharaoh, is greater than anything Pharaoh could offer him and his family. So what changed? There's a dramatic change in Jacob's life. Well, I think Jacob has come to see that the story he's living in has really never been about him. It's a bigger story. It's God's story. And he's a part of it. He's starting to understand his identity in God's bigger story. I mean, the fact is, I think the story of Jacob and Joseph helps us understand the power of identity. Did you know your identity, how you see yourself, is like the rotation of the earth? I mean, you really never notice that it's carrying you along, but any point in time, you're being hurled forward at over a thousand miles an hour. See, how you see yourself, your identity is a powerful force. Did you know you cannot live beyond the way you see yourself? I mean, this world's going to always write you a script of what you should be. Uh, and we find ourselves repeatedly being forced into certain roles, and it's going to require superhuman strength to break free of that gravitational pull. I mean, that script is written by our parents, and we get it from our family, our, our siblings, from our culture around us. But in this story, I think there are four things that are crystal clear about your identity and who you are. I mean, the first is, your identity comes from the story you're living in. Did you know timeless questions are always questions of identity? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? That, that's, those are questions of identity. In fact, I want you to listen to what Alistair McGrath wrote in his book, Evangelicalism and the Future of Christianity. He says, stories are about finding your identity and learning the story of your people. Back in 1900, I heard a professor of American literature describe how he discovered the importance of learning one's own story. The professor who taught at a leading university in Southern California was Kiowa Indian, a Native American from Oklahoma. And he told how he learned the story of his people when he was just a young boy. One day, just after dawn, his father spoke to him and took him to a home of an elderly squaw. He left him there, promising to return to pick him up in the afternoon. All that day, the squaw told the young boy of the story of the Kiowa people. She told him about the origins of the Yellowstone River and how they migrated southward. She told him of the many hardships they faced, the wars with other Indian nations, and the great blizzard of the Winter Plains. She told him of the glories of the life of the Kiowa Nation, the great buffalo hunts and the taming of wild horses and the skill with which the braves rode those horses. And finally, she told him of the coming of the white man. She told him about the humiliation of her once proud nation at the hands of white soldiers who forced them to move south to Kansas where they faced starvation 
and poverty. And her story ended as she told them about their final humiliation, confined on a reservation in Oklahoma. And then shortly before dark, his father returned. And then the professor said this. That squall's words remain firmly planted in my mind. I left that house. When I left that house, I was Kiowa. You see, he learned the story of his people. Before he heard their story, he was Kiowa in name, but now he's Kiowa in reality. Did you know this book is the story of your people? It says that you are a child of a God, of God. You're an heir of the King. Do you see yourself like that? I mean, what you have to offer people is the very blessing of God found in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, knowing that you are a child of the King, an heir to the throne, you can stand before the most powerful and influential people in this world and offer them the gospel of Christ, knowing that what they have to offer you is nothing greater than what you have to offer them. The gospel. God's story. Now that is the power of identity. That's the power of knowing who you are. Now secondly, I think we can see in this story that your identity will always shape your destiny. How you see yourself, in other words, is your future. I mean, think with me for a moment. Imagine if Joseph had just given up on God when all the hardships entered his life. If he had just complained, I don't know why this is happening to me. I mean, I don't deserve this. I guess I'll just be a slave and get along the best I can. How, instead of focusing in on God is with me, showing me His loving kindness through all of this, how differently His story would have turned out. That's the power of living in a bigger story. God's story. What He's doing in this world. And come to think about it, it really doesn't matter what role you have in God's story. Because we all end up at the banquet table, don't we? I mean, we all end up there, and, and we, we all end up getting to experience everything we longed for in our smaller personal stories. And that is reunion, restoration, renewed hope, and new beginnings. But, but I think thirdly, you can see in the story of Joseph and Jacob, that when you live in God's story, He equips you to live out your destiny. In other words, He'll provide everything you need. In other words, you don't have to be up for the task. I mean, think about it. The story that we've been studying for the past two months. I mean, Joseph is a naive 17-year-old lad. He's his father's favorite. But he doesn't have to work, does he? He just has to make sure his brothers work. He goes and checks on them every day. But he's pretty much destined in this crazy family in which he lives to follow in his father's crooked footsteps, and then suddenly he is thrown into slavery. Then he's accused of raping Potiphar's wife. And then he is thrown into prison. But Joseph, as a faithful slave, hanging on to the truth that God is with me, showing me His loving kindness, 
he becomes the manager of Potiphar's house. And then he becomes the manager of the whole prison. And then, as a wise, compassionate, shrewd ruler, he rescues his family from starvation. But not only that, he rescues an entire nation from starvation. But beyond that, people come from all over the world to Joseph personally to get food in order to survive. I mean, can you see what's going on here in the text? Joseph gets to live out the very promise God made to his grandfather Abraham. Do you remember what he said back in Genesis 12? He said this, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, isn't that absolutely amazing? And then finally, I think we need to realize that God's story is always about His people bringing blessing to someone else. By the way, that's the job of the church. And at Horizon, that's what we want to do. We want to bring blessing to the unconvinced, those who don't think the way we think in the hopes and getting them to entertain that there's a bigger story going on around them. I mean, somewhere along the line, Joseph understood that the story that he's living in was not about him. And then he began to care more about God's story than he began to care about himself. And so God used him to do great good. He provided for his family and he provided for an entire nation that didn't know this loving, gracious, kind God. I mean, what a great ending to a story. But here's the question. What ending will be written into your story? As you think about that, I want to read what Donald Miller said. See, if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and works for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends that you, that you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put on a record uh, so that you could think about it some more. No. The truth is, you wouldn't remember that movie a week later except for the fact that you felt robbed and want your money back. I mean, nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo. But, listen to what he says, we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to feel meaningful. The truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful... It won't make a life meaningful either. You see, great movies, great stories, great individuals, great lives are not about people who live for themselves. They're not about people whose ambition is to find comfort for themselves and just buy more stuff. And there's nothing wrong with owning a Volvo. It's just not a big enough story to occupy your entire life. It's not a big enough story to give you a great ending. What makes a good story will make a good life. You see, when you see yourself in God's story, when you find your identity caught up in it, it begins to shape you. And regardless of what part you play in that story, your destiny 
is the same. Your destiny is to bring blessing to other people. Now, that's what makes life worth living. That's an ending that makes all the difference in the world. It leaves a legacy. Father, thank you for these two men, Joseph and Jacob, that their lives just live in such juxtaposition to one another. And it reminds us of how important it is for us to see ourselves as part of your story. That this life is not about us. It's about what you want to accomplish. Would you remind us this week that we are part of a bigger story, a much bigger story, your story. And Father, I have to confess, most of my life kind of lives oblivious to that. I, I tend to want my own comfort. I want a life of ease. And, and I forget from time to time, a lot of time, that I'm in a bigger story. Holy Spirit, would you not let us forget? Would you look for creative ways to remind us this week and the week that follows and the month after that that we are children of a king and we have something awesome to offer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for coming. And if you came prepared to give, there's offering boxes uh, out in the hall. And if you're new, this is your first time here, drop by the hearth room. We would love to greet you there. See you next week. Thank you.